that was, that, turned myself off instead of turning myself on. Um, that was on me. All right. Well, today our sermon comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we've been going through a series, as Matt said, uh, called Becoming Good at People. And what we've been saying is that as members of the mystical body of Christ, we have certain obligations towards one another. And when I say that word, it's got a negative connotation. But these are not burdensome obligations. These are obligations that we all long for, both to have and to receive. To obligations to love one another and to comfort one another, to receive one another, to welcome one another in the name of the Lord. But as much as we long for all those things and long to receive them and to give them, they don't come naturally to us, which is why we must be taught. So that's what this series is for. And this morning, it's up to me to talk about what feels like the most unnatural of all of these movements towards one another, and that is confession, to confess our sins. To confess our sins to one another is perhaps, in my mind, the most terrifying of all the movements toward one another. And yet, what I'm going to try to show you today from the scriptures is that the that that particular level of terror is there because there is a corresponding level of beauty and goodness on the other side of confession. So, if you're ready, here's what we're going to do. Three things. Number one, we're going to talk about the reason for confession. Number two, we're going to talk about the command for confession. And then number three, we're going to talk about the condition that makes confession possible. So the reason, the command, and the condition. Okay, number one. The reason for confession. Let me read the whole verse again from Ephesians. Therefore, having put away falsehood, each one of you, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay. Now, in order to really understand the need for confession, let's begin with the reason that Paul actually gives, which in this case, the reason comes at the end. He says, for we are members of one another another. So yes, we're to tell each other the truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. Now, we need to do some work on this word member. The word membership in our day and age has lost a lot of the richness and the vitality that it had when Paul used it. When we talk about membership, we essentially think in terms of units, Right? A collective with units in it. So think of identically dressed soldiers all standing in a line. If one of them get cut down, another one could come in and fulfill that duty. Um, or think of voters in a district. We would say that those voters are members of that district. But if that member moves away, all it takes is another member to come in and fulfill the exact same duty. They are units of a collective. Okay? That's how we tend to think of membership. Um, in general, our evangelical culture, not here, not here, but in general, our evangelical culture thinks of church membership in that way. We're just units 
of a collective that can be easily replaced, easily interchanged. We leave easily, we come easily, and we think nothing of it because this is our notion of membership. But being one part of a collective is emphatically not what Paul meant when he said that we are members of one another. In Paul's estimation, to be a member of one another does not mean that we are easily exchangeable with one another. Rather, in his mind, membership is more like organs in a body or like a family. Each organ of the body is indispensable. Try removing, you know, the liver and see how the body fares. The liver is crucial to the functioning of the body, just like every other organ. And if, I know that we are able to replace those organs, but think about what a life-altering scenario that is. You have to be in bed for, I don't know, I'm out of my league now, but it's, it's serious. <laughs> just can we, some of you know how serious, I don't, but it's serious, okay? Um, the same thing with the family. Um, the members, I mean, the family is a collective, yes, there are certain numbers of people, but they're not interchangeable. When I was very young, my parents got divorced, and then both of them got remarried. But, I mean, so technically, you know, I had now those, when I went to my dad's house, the role of mother was replaced. When I went to my mom's house, the role of father was replaced. But nobody in their right mind would say that my situation had not changed just because the roles had been fulfilled, right? So if you subtract any member of the family, you haven't just reduced the number as you would in a collective. You haven't just reduced the number. You have fundamentally reordered and altered the structure of the whole. And so when Paul says that we are members of one another, what he's trying to help us see is that we're like a body that cannot function apart from all of its organs being in working order. What he's trying to help us see is that the society into which we are baptized was not a mere collective, but a family. And in that way, we need each other and depend on each other in such a way that life and death is at stake. It, we just heard it. We just heard it. I mean, they didn't say life and death was at stake, but that's what they were saying. Like, we would, we would not have survived without these other people. And this membership with one another, scripturally speaking, is not just something that occurs between the members of the family, us, as the church. Paul also teaches us in 1 Corinthians 12 that while, yes, we are bound to one another as a body, as members of one body, the head of that body is Christ. So to take our membership with one another seriously is to take seriously the very notion of what it means to belong to Christ at all. The two are inextricably interconnected. But, let's go even further. The reality of our membership is not just us together, us joined to Christ. There's more to it than that. The reality of our membership is drawn up into the heights of God's Redemptive purposes in history, in the world. You remember in, in his first letter, Peter instructs the church in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. He says, as you come to him, by the way, you is plural, as y'all come to him, 
We're Georgia. Y'all can understand that, right? As y'all come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What he's saying here, don't miss this, is as we join together in membership, not only are we caring for one another, yes, but we are being built into a spiritual house, a temple in which God himself dwells. All of this is bound up in that little word, members. We are members of one another. We belong to one another. And to the degree that we are functioning in our God-given membership in the body of Christ, to that degree will the church flourish. And to that degree... Will God's people find that they are like the early church in Acts in which every cup was filled and the purposes of God are flourishing? Now, if that's what the ideal is in terms of membership, if that's, if that's the ideal presented to us in Scripture, then that tells me that that's something for which we all long deeply. Don't you long for a family that cares for you and supports you and upholds your dignity, who loves you for who you are and not who they wish you would be? Don't you long for a father who looks you in the face and says, you belong to me no matter what you do? Don't you long for a mother who gives herself for you and for your flourishing, not for herself, but for you? Don't you long to have brothers and sisters who lock arms with you and carry you when you, have, when you can't walk and whom you carry when they can't walk? Of course you do. We all do. And the fact that so precious few of us know what that's like doesn't diminish the fact that that's what we long for. But what Paul is trying to tell us here is that in Christ, we have such a family. We have fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who pick us up when we fall, who remind us that we belong to them. And above all, they love us with the love with which they have been loved. You might even be more skeptical at that point when I say that this is what we have available in the church of God. It could be that your experience in the church has been worse than your experience even in your family. And that could be because we have forgotten to remember what Paul teaches us in this verse. That there are things, even though this is the ideal, that there are things which lead to the breakdown of that family. And if left without a cure, the body ceases to function altogether. And that brings us to our next point, in which we find the tonic that cures the distempers of the body of Christ. And there's many, but the one we're focusing on today is confession. So let's move to our second point, the command for confession. 
So now that we see the reason for confession, namely that we are members of one another, let's look at the command for confession, and that's in the second part of uh, the Ephesians verse. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So understand the logic. Because you are members of one another, tell each other the truth. Now, apparently, falsehood is like a cancer that grows on the organs of the body, and in that way, they cease functioning as they ought. Now, in this case, um, as Paul is in the context of this letter, um, telling the truth to one another probably means more than confessing our sins to one another, but it certainly does not mean less. So we're only going to focus on that narrow slice of it. Now, if we're to enter the glories of membership then confession must be a regular part of our life together. And everyone by instinct knows why. When we sin against one another, no matter how small a rupture occurs. Now, to be clear, our membership is not broken by sin, but our fellowship is. There's a difference there. Our membership, we are still, like, we are still connected in Christ. We are still family in Christ, but our fellowship has been broken. Just like a tumor growing on an organ doesn't mean that the organ is no longer part of the body, but it means that it cannot do what it's meant to do among the other organs. In fact, sins committed against each other are so disruptive that if you'll remember uh, Jesus teaching us in Matthew chapter 5, that... Even if you're in the middle of an act of worship, stop it. Go be reconciled. He says in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So someone has something against us, which is to say we've sinned against them, and Jesus says, drop whatever you're doing, go confess, and make it right. Okay, if that's the case, then we need to spend a few moments understanding how this medicine works. What is confession and how do we do it? Now, when we see the word confession in the Bible, it literally means to publicly announce something. And that public could be like this. That public could be between two people. But it means to announce something. We get our English word from the Latin confessare, which means simply to acknowledge something. But I didn't need to say all that. You already know what it means to confess. But while we know the meaning of the word by instinct, the act of doing it can get bent in so many different ways. And if the life of the body of Christ is at stake, then we'd better spend some more time meditating on it and teasing it out. So, there's a few ingredients in a proper confession. The first ingredient is the sight of sin. If you, if you, want, if you want this medicine to really work, the first ingredient of this medicine is sight of sin. You remember that magnificent phrase in the parable of the prodigal son where he's at the bottom of the well of his life, he's eating from the slop that the pigs are eating, and then it says, 
And then he came to himself. Remember that? Oh! And then he came to himself, which is to say he saw that he had sinned, that he had sinned, and he had broken his family apart by it. And then he went back to the family. So the eye is given to us for seeing, but it is also given to us for weeping. And sin must be seen before it can be wept for. And I reckon we've all been in a situation before where we've presented a grievance to one another or to somebody else, and they simply fire off. Sorry. You, you, yeah, we, have, have we experienced this? Here's my, I just, oh, I'm, so I'm, I don't want to say this, but here it is. And just, oh, sorry. Mm. <laughs> you know by their response that they don't see their sin. The first ingredient is not there. They don't see it. Or even worse, you bring a grievance to someone and their confession runs like this. I'm sorry you're hurt. <laughs> you, you, okay, we've all, yes. As if to say, I have no part in this, but I can see that you're hurt, and so I'm sorry that you're so weak (laughs) as to get hurt by something so trivial. In this case, the person does not see their sin, and so the rupture cannot be healed. The person is like the preachers in the Old Testament, which complained, you heal the sins, excuse me, you heal the wounds of the people lightly. They've lost a limb, and our response is, just go tape it up. Get some scotch. Do we got some scotch tape? Tape it up. No. Serious intervention is needed. Now, to be clear, sight of our sin is not something that we can just muster in and of ourselves. True sight of our sin is a grace, just like everything else is grace in our lives. Um, It is a gift that God gives. And here's what I know. Anyone who earnestly seeks sight of their sin, that is a gift that God will not withhold. On the other hand, we can see from reading the scriptures just how easily God allows himself to be refused. This is astonishing. I mean, how long did he bear with the stiff-necked Israelites in their idolatry, in their reckless covenant-breaking before he actually convinced them by exile from their land that they had sinned. Now, I take that to mean that God forces his grace on no one. But to the one who earnestly seeks it, they will find it. So, practically speaking, if someone brings a grievance to me, and I don't see it the way they see it, which is very possible, I don't see it the way they see it, then the most honoring thing I can do for that member of the body is just give me some time. I need, to, I need to ask for this grace to see what you're bringing to me. Go then, seek the grace of God. Allow, allow him to pull back the curtain and show you what is true. If it is to be a true and healing balm, the confession must begin with sight of sin. That's the first ingredient. Second ingredient in true confession is sorrow for sin. Uh, the psalmist says in 30, uh, Psalm 38, 18, I will be sorry for my sin. You might as well ask a woman to bear a child without pain as to make a confession without sorrow. 
Once we have seen the sin that we've committed against another, there is a second grace which we must labor to receive, and that is sorrow for sin. If you don't mind me descending into the particulars here, um, it would be wise for us to do a little thinking on the nature of this true sorrow because it is easily counterfeited. So, what is true sorrow? Number one, the grace of sorrow affects us inwardly, which is to say it is a sorrow of the heart. When Jesus criticized the Pharisees, he said, you, you screw up your face and your grief is all there. A hypocrite, their, their sorrow is all outward. When you wake up every morning, uh, you see the dew on the grass. All that dew is superficial. That does not go down to the roots of the vegetation and make it flourish. In the same way, merely external sorrow does not heal the rupture between members of the body of Christ. It is our heart, listen, listen, it's our heart that is the chief mover in our sin, and therefore it is our heart which must be chiefly afflicted with sorrow over our sin. The second ingredient in confession or excuse me, in sorrow, is that the grace of sorrow mourns for the offense, not merely for the punishment or potential punishment. It mourns for the offense, not merely for the punishment or the potential punishment. One way we can know that our heart has not yet reached the full height of godly sorrow, the grace of sorrow for sin is precisely because we fear the response. We, we don't confess because we fear the response that is coming uh, as a result of our confession. A thief can be sorry because he stole. Um, excuse me, a, a thief can be sorry that he stole because he has to pay the penalty, but not because he stole. And this is where some of the terror comes in that I mentioned earlier with respect to confession. I mean, what if? What if, upon confessing this sin to another, everything changes between us? This fear is especially acute when the other person doesn't know that you have sinned against them. And our confession will be the first time they're learning of it. That is a terrifying prospect. Now, I'm a high school history teacher by profession, and one of the things I've been doing for the last three years is putting short lecture, history lecture videos on YouTube for my students. And everything, I mean, I did everything I knew to generate an audience there. Um, but the growth was modest for the first couple of years. And um, because I aimed to make that at least part of my living, um, I needed more of an audience. Then last spring, out of the blue, unsought for, Someone who had a massive audience on that platform. This channel has billions of views. His audience between several different channels is over a million subscribers. And he had seen my stuff and he wanted to work with me. <laughs> that was a good day. That was a good day. Needless to say, like anyone who has started a business knows that feeling when the, when the big break comes. Like that is a good day. And that day, that was that day for me. And so he, he and I began to chat on the phone. 
And what he wanted to do was produce some video content for AP government, uh, like a review sort of thing. And, um, and just so you know, in case you don't, uh, the organization that creates AP classes also hosts training over the summer so the teacher can go and get trained in the material and then um, go and teach it. And uh, just as a passing comment, as he and I were talking in our initial conversation, he was like, you've been to the AP government training, right? I said, yeah. But here's the truth. No. <laughs> I did not go to that training. But to be fair, to be fair, I was at the AP economics training, which was next door. It was the next class. So I was near the training. <laughs> um, <laughs> the point is, I lied. And I did so because I thought this opportunity would be good for my career. I didn't want this guy who had a ton of clout to doubt my ability to do what he was asking me to do because the truth is that wasn't a required credential. Like, I didn't have to have gone to that. I could have said no, and it would have been fine. It was just a passing comment, as, and we moved right along with the conversation, making plans for our project. But as soon as I hung up the phone, I was terrified. I could see my sin. I had sight of it. That was clear enough. But my sorrow had not yet reached the point of truth. I knew I ought to confess. That's what Christians do. I ought to tell the truth. I ought to say to him what I did. But the fear was acute. Well, to, to say the truth, to confess what I did, Will that mean the opportunity that I've worked so hard for that just fell in my lap, will it all go away? And that's when the justifications come rushing at you. He doesn't even know that I didn't go to the training. He, he has no way to find out. To, to confess it wouldn't even help him in any material way anyway, and it would hurt me in a very material way. Am I the only one? Do y'all, can we just, okay, thank you. Um, and in this way, I began to feel the temptation to stay quiet. In these moments, the serpent comes and whispers in our ears, it's not that big of a deal. There's no way he's going to find out. If you tell him the truth, he'll walk away. and All that you've worked for will be ruined. But the grace of sorrow is this. I don't think I put it up here, so just listen. Psalm 32, verses three through four. The psalmist says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. If you read the beginning of the psalm, you know he's, the psalmist has sinned grievously. We don't know what it is, but he has sinned. And he says, when I stayed silent, my bones wasted away. When the grace of true sorrow comes to us, there is a deep and holy agony over our sins. Like a fire shut up in our bones. And as that fire grows hotter and hotter, the only vent that can quench it 
It's confession. And so as God granted me that grace over my transgression, the confession of my heart was this. Come what may, I've got to tell the truth. I must confess this wrong. The consequences would be what they would be, but this cancer must not remain between he and I. So I called him up, told him what I had done. And thankfully, he was very kind, very forgiving, and nothing changed between us. But that wasn't the point. The point is, true confession must be attended with true sorrow, and true sorrow for the sin and not for the consequences of the sin. That is the only way we will truly confess to one another. Okay, now, we've talked about what confession is. We've talked about talked about what sorrow is. We've seen we've got to see the sin. We've got to feel the sorrow for the sin. The third ingredient in true confession is the actual confession itself. Now, the word, as I mentioned before, literally means to say something out loud with words between more than one people. Maybe this goes without saying, but maybe not. It's one thing to see the disease and to believe that the medicine will cure it. But as long as that medicine remains in the bottle, none of its healing effect can work upon the sickness. As far as the act of confessing goes, we could use some more instruction. So, first, how do we confess? Okay, number one, confession is specific. The heart is not moved by generalities, but by specificities. Nor is the body healed by general acknowledgement of sickness. Right? I, my wife, who is a medical professional, gets endlessly exasperated with me when I get sick. She wants to help me. Um, <laughs> and when she asks what's wrong, my stock response is, I feel weird. <laughs> I mean, I kid you not. I could have the flu. I got the stomach bug. I could have just got shot in the stomach. And if she asked me what's wrong, I feel weird. Like that's, I, I don't know why, but that's, God help me. But um, nausea can be addressed, right? Headaches can be tempered. Fevers can be medicated. Weird cannot be healed. The same is true with confession. If the rupture in the body is to be healed, then we must be specific. I sinned in precisely this way with these motivations, and I am deeply sorry. Now, let me hasten to add, there are certainly some circumstances in which the details of a transgression cross over the boundaries between what is, what is right to confess, like these details will actually only serve to harm the other person. In that case, a friend of mine talks about confessing categories but not colors, and I won't say anything more about that except this, that knowing the level of detail to confess, especially with grievous sins, um, requires the sound wisdom of other people who love Jesus in your life, and so you need to rely on them. Okay, second, in the confession, we must charge ourselves with the crime and not the person to whom we're confessing. 
We must charge ourselves with the crime, not the person to whom we're confessing. It may very well be true that my sin against another was occasioned or influenced by their sins, their sins against me, but my confession is not the time to charge them with it. It's very tempting to ease the shame and the guilt we feel over our own sin against another. It's very tempting to let the fire in our bones burn against the other party. But consider this. When you confess your sins, what you are asking for is forgiveness. Matt's going to pick this up next week. So I'll only say it briefly here. When you confess your sins, what you are asking for is forgiveness. If we charge the other person with fault as we confess, what we're really asking for is to be excused. And there's a world of difference between excusing somebody and forgiving them. It may be that there are some excellent excuses that may genuinely be excused but there's always that bit left over that the excuses don't cover, and that's what must be forgiven. And so in our confessions, we must leave the excuses out, confess what must be forgiven, and leave the other person out of it. We'll get to that some other day. But in the confession, here's what I did. Third, in the confession, we must be humble enough to realize that we are loading the other person with a burden to carry by our confession. It's true that our confession quenches the fire in our own bones and there's like relief. Despite the wreckage that has occurred, it's like, oh, there's relief for letting that out. But it also loads the person to whom you've confessed with a great burden. And to me, the better part of love recognizes the situation and grieves over it. That's part of the grief. And it may be that you can help that person bear the burden that you've placed upon them and so love them as Christ has loved you by bearing your burden. But it may be that the rupture is so grievous that your help is not desired. And in that case, all that's left for me to do is pray that the Lord himself will help that person bear it. Now, next week, as I mentioned, Matt is going to take up the, the, the very much a companion sermon to this one. He's going to take up what does it mean to find forgiveness and what does it mean to see relationships restored through forgiveness, even when we load each other with these terrible burdens of our sins and transgressions and iniquities between us. There is healing for it. But my part is to stick to the confession. So let's get to the third point, the condition that makes confession possible, the condition. And this is where we get to the first part of Paul's instruction to us. He says, confession of sin, speaking the truth to one another is, so, is no small thing, and in some cases can be utterly terrifying. We've seen that the reason we do it is because we are members of each other, And we've had some particular instructions on how to do the confession itself. Now, what makes all of that possible? The first part of Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, he says, having put away falsehood. He's speaking to Christians. 
And he says that the condition of being born again means that we have put off falsehood. It's off. And what does that mean? Well, notice that the sentence begins with, therefore, which means we're right in the middle of an argument. So let's back up and see the whole of his teaching, starting in verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. When we believed in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, Paul likens it to putting on new clothing. The old set of clothes is cast away. And we have been clothed with the image of Christ in true righteousness, he says, and holiness. And that means, as Paul says, that we have put away. One of the pieces, one of the articles of clothing that has been cast off is falsehood and hiding and deceit between God's people, because we are remade in the image of Christ, between God's people, we can be open and free with our confessions because we are clothed with the truth of Christ. The terror we feel is not final, but the truth we possess is. And the assurance we have is this, that Christ died for sinners, of whom I am the chief. All of our transgressions by which we have harmed each other and by which we have devoured one another, all of that was concentrated into the body of Christ upon the tree. And in that day, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be forgiven. So hear this. It may be that your confession to another person restores the relationship. And praise God. It may be that your confession to another person does everything that you feared. Maybe worse. That's as may be. But you bear the image of Christ, and you belong to Him no matter what you do. No confession alerts Jesus to new information. He knew it before you did it, and he loved you to the end and loves you still. He purchased your forgiveness at great cost to himself, and you need never fear that you will lose him. So in that confidence, brothers and sisters, clothed in the image of the one who loved you so dearly, let us go and confess our sins to one another, for we are members of one another. Now we come to this table, as we do every single week. And in a very real way, this is a table of confession. By standing up 
and walking down the aisle, I am confessing in front of the whole congregation that I am the chief of sinners that Paul speaks of. That my sins were so grievous, so powerful, so deep, that it required the death of the Son of God to atone for me. And by doing this, we are acknowledging it to be so. Therefore, as we confess in front of this whole congregation, it may be that upon receiving this grace, there is a confession that needs to be made within this congregation. I implore you to do it. And if that's the case, may God grant you the grace of confession so that we may be healed. And so come, and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I have sat through sermons like this before and wondered what you required of me. I suppose I didn't have to wonder, I knew. I simply lacked the power to do it. Father, my brothers and sisters are hearing your words opened, applied, and explained. And they know in their bones that a confession must occur. Would you grant them that grace? Help them to feel the sorrow. Help them to see it. And help them to confess in such a way that they love the other person in doing so. Now, we love you. And we are grateful. We pray that you would heal our body of any rupture that has occurred so that we may flourish. We don't have time in this world to be sick. We don't have time to stop in the hospital every week. The Lord is coming. And we must be whole. So, help us. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a member of God's church, not necessarily of this church, but of any church, God's universal church, you are welcome to come and enjoy the grace of your membership. So, 